Back to first John and chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses. First John chapter 4, the first six verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, brethren, after a rather lengthy break, we're coming again to our series of messages in the book of First John. And as we have already seen in times past in this book, what we are primarily learning is that salvation is something that is knowable. You can know if the Lord has saved you from sin. And there are tests that you ought to use in order to confirm that. And what John does in this particular epistle is to give us different tests. And what we should do as Christians, or at least as those who profess to be Christians, is to, to read through a book like this and deliberately ask ourselves the question, is this true about me? If it is, then you can say, praise the Lord, he has saved me. But if you are constantly putting question mark after question mark, then you ought to then say, let me really seek the Lord that he may truly, truly save me. For instance, we're looking at chapter 3. Uh, most of uh, the last time that we're in this book together. And you will remember that there were essentially two tests there. There was the test of morality and the test of love. With respect to morality, it was from chapter 3, verse 4 to verse 10. And then with respect to love, it was from chapter 11 all the way to the end of, rather verse 11, all the way to the end of the chapter. In fact, the passage that we are looking at together, which is chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 6, is actually just a brief detour. It's, a, it's in brackets. John is really continuing on the subject of love. And you easily notice it from verse 7 of chapter 4, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, 
for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So he simply continues with the theme of love. But in between, he has done this quick detour. And in that, he wants us to take time to be responsible over our lives. Because it's very easy in this world to be deceived. There are many people who are sincere, but sincerely wrong. They follow teachers who lead them astray with open Bibles like this. They lead them astray. And John is concerned that we don't just believe anybody who wears a dog collar or calls himself a pastor and opens the Bible and we begin to think surely what the person is saying must be true. Let us listen to him. Let us follow him. And especially when he spoke about us uh, having the spirit who has been given to us. He, he really wants to separate, to, to differentiate between the spirit of God and the spirit which is not of God, so that we may truly follow the spirit who is from God. So last time, we, we began to look at this, and he was clearly emphasizing this point. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And the main reason is many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many individuals out there who want to deceive you. I want us to look at verse 2 and verse 3, in which he is now talking about what test we are to use. What test we are to use in arriving at who is a faithful teacher of the word of God who will really take us to heaven. Who is it? And basically, his answer is, it is somebody who teaches the truth concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the test. Am I really being taught the truth about Jesus Christ? What this person says about him, can it stand an inductive study of the scriptures? Whereby, as I simply look at what the Bible says about Jesus, and then look at what this person is saying, will the two things tally? That's the test he's speaking about. And I want us to look at that together briefly this morning. First of all, as we begin to look at verse 2, it is vital to realize that there are only two spirits that are out, as it were, in the world. Only two. The spirit of God and the spirit of the Antichrist. So whoever we are listening to belongs in one of those two categories. And you notice the way in which John puts it here. Although he's talking about testing spirits, he divides everybody into two camps. And in the first camp, which is the one which passes the test, 
This is the way he puts it. By this you know the spirit of God. That's in that camp. It is the spirit of God. And then from there, he breaks it down and says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He then crosses over and begins with the whole team of spirits as it were. And this is the way he puts it. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And then he bunches all of them up under one spirit. And this is the way he puts it. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Two spirits, either the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist. Not three or four. Not 5,000, not Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, African traditional religions, and so many others, and then we are choosing from them. Or within Christianity, you have Protestants, you have Catholics, and then you start sort of throwing in all the other aberrations, uh, watchtowers, SDS, and so on, and you are supposed to sort of just choose which one fits your color. He's saying there is truth and there is error. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of the devil. And your greatest concern should be which spirit am I following? Which one? It's not 5,000. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And they are at war with each other. That's the reason why he puts everything into these two camps. The spirit of Christ. The spirit of God. In the kingdom of God. And the spirit of the evil one. The spirit of this world. The spirit of the antichrist. And his kingdom. Now, when he breaks it down further and speaks about every spirit, we begin to ask the question, what is he referring to here? He says there in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus. What are these spirits? Who are these spirits? Our temptation is to think that he must be referring to either angels or demons. Angels on the one hand being from the spirit of God and consequently speaking the truth. Demons on the other coming from the devil, the father of lies and consequently telling lies. Now that would be forcing logic onto the text. Because uh, that's not the way John tends to think. John here is, is primarily intimately identifying or connecting the individuals who are speaking with the spirit that is influencing them as they speak. 
the individuals who are speaking with the spirit that is influencing them as they speak. So you can easily replace every spirit with simply the phrase, everyone. You can easily do that. You can say, for instance, by this you know the spirit of God. Everyone that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the places from God, and everyone that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, this teacher who is standing in front of you and teaching you the ways of life, the ways of God, the way of salvation, and so on and so forth. This one, there is a spirit that is influencing him. There is a spirit that has taught him. There is a spirit that has now brought him to the position where he is. The way in which you will know whether it's the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist will be in the teaching that he's giving you. The teaching that is giving you. So the point that is being made is this. That spirits speak. Spirits influence. Spirits teach. But they do not have vocal cords of their own. Instead, they speak through your speech organs. They tempt through you. They mislead through you. Or they lead in the ways of righteousness and truth through you, through your speech organs. As they influence you directly or as they influence you indirectly. They are there. They are working. Actively working. But the final influence and thus communication with all of us is done through one another. Through you. So when the evil one comes to tempt you to sexual sin, how does he do it? It is an individual that he uses. Through that individual, he deceives. Through that individual, he speaks. Through that individual, he finally brings you into sin. Or, as happened at the beginning of our time, the devil used a serpent. Now, how that serpent ended up communicating, speaking to Eve, we do not know. We were not there. But clearly, that's what the Bible teaches. Because the devil did not have his own vocal cords that he could thus speak to Eve. And how did Adam end up sinning? Again, the devil did not show up there in a red suit with a red fork in his hand and a tail wagging behind his head. It was as Eve came to speak to her husband. And through that, Adam ended up listening to the devil. All right. So we need to be very clear about this reality. That the evil spirits are not going to come and speak through the walls of your bedroom. It's through a person who walks on two feet, who's speaking to you. 
And what we are being told is, whoever you are having dealings with has been influenced by different spirits, has been influenced either directly or indirectly, and those spirits are intelligent spirits. Either it is the spirit that is leading you in the paths of truth and righteousness, or a spirit that is leading you into unrighteousness and into falsehood. Very well then, how do we identify that the spirit behind this teacher is the spirit of God? Let's read verse 2 together. Because what John is telling us here is that the spirit of God teaches what is true and biblical about the person and work of Christ. What is true and biblical biblical about the person and work of Christ. Verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, that individual who is passionate, truly convinced and convicted concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ and in such a way that what he is teaching is biblical. You can put it against the touchstone of scripture and that person will pass with flying colors as it were. That is a servant of God. That's a servant that has been, as it were, prepared deliberately by the spirit of God. So that you may know this God through Jesus Christ. Notice that the test of a person's belief is expressed through his teaching about Jesus Christ. He would have said, you know, uh, you can test him through whether he believes in a, in a six-day creation or whether he believes in a sort of evolutionary creation, which is a major argument in the Western world. That's not what he says. He could have said that it depends on his belief concerning baptism, whether it is by immersion or by sprinkling. There's nothing like that here. He could have said it depends on what kind of church government you are under. What, what do they teach in that church with respect to his church government? He doesn't. He goes to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is this. What is the way of salvation? Salvation is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You get it wrong there, you are on your way to hell. It doesn't matter whether everything else you believe is correct, you are still on your way to hell. And that's the reason why the devil will, will want you to be correct on a thousand things if he can get you to be wrong on who Jesus is and what he has done to bring salvation. There, he will want you to go wrong. And sadly, how true it is. I don't know how many people in Zambia 
But I'll tell you the equivalent. Nine out of every ten Christians, notice my fingers, eh? Christians, in other words, in quotation marks, people who claim to be Christians, nine out of every ten, when I ask them, are you a Christian, they will say yes. Then when I ask the second question, if you were to arrive at the door of heaven and angel Gabriel pulled you out of the crowd and asked you the question, why should I allow you in? What answer would you give? The answer is almost invariably Chigondo over the bar. It's a wrong answer. Wrong answer. And often, Jesus Christ is conspicuous by his absence. Absent! Sometimes, because I'm still sort of waiting, still waiting, I sort of look at you and think, okay, obviously I haven't finished. Then somewhere along the line, they mention him. But even when they mention him, it's not in his fullness. It's not who he is and what he has done. It is as a kind of lucky charm that they keep in their pockets. Oh yes, accepted him as my savior. Oh yes. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I almost forgot. He's also in my pocket, Jesus. Now friends, I want to assure you, speak like that to angel Gabriel, you are gone. You are gone. Not for six months, for all eternity. And primarily because you spent your life listening to an individual who showed you everything else except the length and breadth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the time at which John was writing, the battle raged on the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. And that's the reason why, with respect to this subject, he's constantly saying that the person who confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Because the popular teaching there was that Jesus Christ, who everybody knew, because he was in the popular news, was an ordinary human being. Until his baptism. And when he was being baptized, and the heavens opened, and the spirit descended on him, that's when the divine nature came on him. And so from that day onwards, he had the human nature that he was always born with and the spirit that now came from God giving him the divine nature. Until just before he went to, to the cross, while he was in Gethsemane, the spirit left him and he became an ordinary human being. That's why he could die on the cross. So it was an ordinary human being that was born, an ordinary human being who died. It's just in the middle 
that you had somebody having two natures. And I tell you, it was a major teaching. Not outside the church. It was a major teaching in the churches. It was causing havoc in the churches. And so when you read a number of these epistles, you find them continuing to argue. This Jesus was not a human being. He was God who came in the flesh, who took on human flesh. He was already God. And when he was being born, at the point of being born, a human nature was added to his divine nature. And it was therefore the God man who died on the cross. And it was the God man who rose from the dead. The apostles constantly argued that that's the Christian teaching. And that anybody who is teaching you otherwise is not simply another kind of teacher believing something a little different. He is not sent from heaven. It is only one who believes this who is truly of God. So that's the identity, first of all, of the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He is God who has taken on human nature and consequently come out the other way. The opposite is equally true as we've just seen. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus, and what he means there is confessing him in this way, is not from God. That's a powerful statement. Is not from God. He had said it earlier in chapter 2. Let's quickly go back to chapter 2. And verse 22. Chapter 2 and verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That doesn't mean much to us in today's terms, but what he simply means is that Jesus, whom you have been seeing making his way through Nazareth and Galilee, is the Messiah that was promised throughout the Old Testament. He's the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament. Because throughout the Old Testament, they were constantly, one prophet after the other, saying to them that a Messiah is coming. Now, again, that's not saying everything to us, but let's listen to this. Part of the promises was something like this. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And this is what his name shall be. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That baby in Bethlehem's crib is almighty God. Not until he's 30 years and gets baptized. Uh -uh. That little baby born is everlasting father. 
That's who he is. Almighty God. That's the Messiah that was promised. And this Jesus is the Christ. So we're now being told anyone who denies that this Jesus whom we knew, whose father was Joseph, the mother was Mary, is this promised Messiah. God coming to be with us. Emmanuel being born as a little baby and growing up among us. Now listen to this. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. He's the Antichrist. He goes on to say, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That's the same thing he's telling us here. He repeats in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Oh, sorry, I meant 2 John. 2 John, verse 7. It has no chapters. 2 John, verse 7. I want you to notice this again. The consistency. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And who are these deceivers? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. This is the heresy that was there then. And it was crucial. Because friends, if the one who was born was not God, tell me what kind of righteousness is he going to take over to God the Father and say to him, this is my righteousness that I have had from birth and I want to give it in exchange for the sins of Millions and millions of people. If he was just an ordinary man. That's not mathematics. Mathematics refuses there. You can't have the righteousness of one human being being sufficient for millions and millions and millions of people. It must be one person versus one. Period. Again, if he was not God as he was on that cross, if we did not have God paying with his own blood the, the, the redemption of his people, if it was a mere human being paying the price there, how can one human being pay the price of millions and millions of people? How? Again, mathematics is obvious. It must be one person for one. Jesus' death on the cross would have only been sufficient for one person, probably his own mother, period. For she was a sinner. She was. Whatever other people may teach you, she was a sinner who needed to be saved like all the rest of us. Jesus Christ had to be born God and die on the cross as God. For there to be an infinite value in his righteousness and an infinite value in his death 
to cover all of us. The apostles fought hard on this issue because if they had lost it, they would have lost Christianity altogether. You see, truth matters. Brethren, truth matters. Sadly, we are living in an age when what a person believes doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't matter. People join churches without being asked the question, what is it that makes you think you are a Christian? What do you believe concerning God, concerning Christ, concerning the way of salvation? Nothing like that. It's rather what a person has done. Have you walked to the front? Have you lifted a hand? Have you repeated a prayer? Then you must be a Christian. You must be. How can you do all those things if you're not a Christian? You must be a Christian. And worse still, if a person is claiming to have miraculous powers, and I always emphasize claiming, because all these are just empty claims. But yes, they claim them. You don't ask, what does the guy believe? You don't ask anymore. He must be a servant of God. Because with all these claims, surely it must be God who is behind him. That's the age in which we live. But we read here, truth matters. It matters what you believe. When you stand at the door of heaven, my dear friend, there will be a test of orthodoxy there. And it's not on the minute details of everything else that makes the Christian faith. It's around the person and work of Christ. You see, we fail to see that belief is the root of our lives. What you believe is how you will live tomorrow. I want to assure you of that. We've already been saying concerning the, the, the series in Daniel, and I hope you come and see it again very clearly this evening if you do come, that those three children of Israel who, who withstood Nebuchadnezzar and said to him very clearly before his eyes that we don't even need to talk about it. This God of ours is faithful, but is also sovereign. In the midst of a potentate who is so angry that his entire face has turned red, There is truth they believed in. God is faithful. God is sovereign. And he will prove himself faithful and sovereign even today. Truth is what produces salvation and sanctification. Error does not save a soul and it does not sanctify. Error doesn't. 
And that's why in these circles, there are so many scandals. So many scandals. It's obvious. It's the wrong belief system. The wrong belief system. That simply because you've gone to the front, repeated the prayer, and some kind of deliverance has happened over you, you go out there and live a righteous life. You can't. It's a lie. You just become a, a whitewashed tomb. That is all you are. On the outside looking okay, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. That's the reality. It is truth that saves. It is truth that sanctifies. As long as what we are listening to on the radio on the television in the name of Christianity is nothing but heresy and lies and wrong teaching. Dear friends, we cannot have revival in Zambia. We are cheating ourselves. And sadly, that's the case today. Turn on your radio if you want. Turn on to religious TV if you want. And say, uh, tell me if what you'll be listening to will be the truth concerning Jesus Christ and him crucified. Tell me if it won't just be motivational speaking sprinkled with a little bit of biblical teaching here and there. But Jesus Christ hardly taught. There are only two kingdoms in this world. And you belong to one or the other. And one of the ways in which you know is what you believe concerning Jesus Christ. Who he is. The life he lived. And what he has done to save your soul from sin. That's what brings us into the kingdom. And the deeper you go into those central truths, the higher you go spiritually. The higher you go spiritually. Your life can become as it were a skyscraper if you've sunk deep into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you test the spirits. And with that, test me. Test me. I'm a teacher before you. Put me to the test. Is this what this chap is teaching us? And friends, if that's not what you are hearing from this pulpit, you have every right under God. Fire me! I mean it! Why put your soul in danger to just pay a money salary? Why? And then rust for all eternity. For all eternity. Just because you want to keep a false teacher in front of you. No, because, you know, there's nice music there. Very good choir. You know, when they sing, there's a band and they do a good job. For your soul. For your soul. You put music first for your soul. You drink in heresy every week for your soul. You end up being a complete mess because of chasing after 
just music. Oh, friends, test the spirit. Test the spirits. You have the means that God himself has given you. And make sure that where there is a teaching ministry that has passed the test, that's where you take glue, put it on a pew, and sit there. That here I will learn for the sake of my soul. But where a teaching ministry fails this test, run for your life. Run for your life. Run for your life. Amen.